Hey there, my name is Vosh. I live stream on YouTube and Twitch, and sometimes I even upload the good bits. This is Previously Live. So basically, no, well, I mean, this is all very informal. We're chatting. I'm live on your feed. This is going to end up obviously posted on my channel at some point. Of course. Uh, but I don't know this. I don't even know how this is going to work. It's a strange dynamic. I've never interviewed someone whilst also live on. But we need an interview. It's a chat. Um, I should just say quickly, without getting a little bit heavy at the beginning, mm-hmm. um, I have just found out that one of my comrades and friends has died. Uh, Dawn Foster, who's a br- brilliant British socialist writer, um, that's sent a lot of shockwaves to the British left. So bear with me because uh, I only found out forty-five minutes ago and. Uh, she was a brilliant writer, full of humanity and courage for the both British and the Irish left. It is a big shock. So I just I'm very to just... sorry to hear that. That's okay. That's okay. Don't worry. I mean, yeah, it's a bit, you know, heavy to put that in. But um, while I'm doing, you know, the first video since she died, just to remember what a brilliant and humane and courageous person she was. That's said and done. Uh, bear with me. Um, so, do you know what? Just hit me. What is the function of being a left YouTuber? I'm a very basic question. Like, why are we? Do- <laughs> what, what are we doing with our lives? Go and why? What's your, uh, fun- what's your purpose? Come on, hit me with it. Existential. The internet is, at the moment, by far the best cost investment to eyeballs on your content ratio that you can get for producing any kind of political media. Nothing else comes close. You can produce pamphlets, you can stand out in a street corner and scream at people, you can attempt to unionize, you can get a television show, you can do anything and everything. Nothing comes close to the potential of the internet. You can reach, you would know this better than I, because you're quite a bit larger than I am, but with essentially no budget, you can reach millions of people. It's extraordinary and unprecedented. And I think this is an avenue that leftists need to explore more aggressively. The thing is, we don't have money, not compared to our antagonists, at the very least. Business interests in the right, they're far more interested in and willing to pump money into their ventures. They're more capable of financing their political operations. So in the absence of that, what we do is we take advantage of the cheaper route. Right now, online is that route. For a long time, YouTube had very little left-leaning representation. It was dominated by these sort of um, anti-feminist skeptics who were maybe not explicitly right-wing in every respect, but at the very least, they signaled in that direction. It's only over the past few years that things have improved in that respect. Um, And the whole thing of so-called breadsheet, and for those who don't know what breadsheet, I might let you explain what breadsheet is, actually, because some people might not know what the hell I'm talking about. They don't half the time for not their fault, often because of my meandering nonsense that comes out of my mouth. But with what, as far as I understand it, part of it is trying to game the algorithm because what YouTube will do is you'll often get, I don't know, a guy who accidentally will, will click on something and then end up down a kind of rabbit holes of what 15 feminazis humiliated. <laughs> uh, and then they keep going down like various other wormholes and then end up completely radicalized and all the rest of it. Mm-hmm. And my understanding is so-called breadsheet, which I'll let you explain, is partly trying to go, well, those out will, we will kind of go into what those algorithms are. So actually our videos will be recommended and there is the antidote to cure them of their radicalization. I think it's just about giving people an alternative explanation to problems that they don't necessarily understand. For example, if people like, say, your average YouTube viewer, like a young guy, you know, not like some wizened academic, but like a young, like dumb kid or whatever, is going on YouTube and all of the videos that they're consuming, gaming content, you know, has these 
complaints about SJWs taking over gaming, you know, they're putting women into pander to the feminist Nazis or whatever. Even if these the messaging in these videos is not explicitly political, they're going to be guided in that direction. It's important to give them an alternate explanation. Give them a video, you know. It doesn't have to be some expressly political 45-minute long video essay, but something and say, hey, maybe this isn't so much of a problem. Maybe if there is a problem, it has more to do with corporate marketing standards than it does like, I don't know, the nefarious will of feminists. Maybe there's another side to things. And I think that since this push on YouTube has shifted more towards the left, there has been a drastic decrease in the number of like young, dumb kids sliding down into the right wing because they just weren't ever given an alternate explanation for the way the world works. So... I really, I'm interested in your theory of change, because I know this is a big schism on the US left at the moment about, say, the approach to the Biden administration. Some would go, look, just, you know, Biden, his whole record, very much from the neoliberal wing of the US Democrats, long history of supporting imperialist wars of aggression, um, worked with racists, which mm-hmm. even his now Vice President Kamala Harris during the presidential debates for the nomination called him uh, called him out explicitly on allegations of course of sexual harassment uh, from women uh, you know this guy is is that's one you know he's the democrats unlike the british party of labor with all its many faults but it, it this is a corporate party backed by the liberal or centrist wing of the us ruling class and another would go well actually the democrats are more amorphous than a western european style political party and there is a rising left which the bernie sanders campaign helped mobilize and the aoc and the aoc and the squad really helped galvanize further and in conjunction with social movements you can drag them to the left and put pressure on the Biden administration to do more progressive uh, policies than they otherwise would have done. Where do you stand in all of that? I think that it's fairly obvious to any left-leaning person in this country that the Democratic Party is either incapable of or being unwilling to be our glorious social Democrat saviors, that there is too much of a moderate bent to the party. I don't like to think of the Democratic Party itself as an agent for positive change. I like to think of it as a great beast or a vehicle that we can use and exploit to our own ends. When, De- when Bernie Sanders ran, he didn't win twice, you know, 2016, 2020. But what he did get was a uh, soapbox to speak upon. He reached millions of people, hundreds of millions. And since then, there has been a drastic increase in almost every measurable empirical uh, indicator of left-leaning participation in this country in almost every way from people's political opinions, IWW and DSA membership, everything, just everything went up because you had a guy like him and he had access to basically the largest stage in the world, which is the United States presidential race. The world rocks when people speak uh, on on those stages. That's just the, the system that we live in. So we should take advantage of that to the best possible extent. Will the Democratic Party ever be used in and of itself as an effective vehicle for change? I don't know. What I do know is that right now, because of the way our electoral system works, there really isn't an avenue for some kind of revolutionary alternative to the two-party system. Without uh, uh, ranked choice voting or any kind of institutional support for parties outside the Dems and the Republicans, we're kind of limited to those two avenues. The right knows this. Fascists and neo-Nazis have spent decades uh, infiltrating and exploiting the the in- infrastructure of the Republican Party to get their messages passed to great 
effects in some cases, we must do the same and we must do it more effectively than them because, of course, we want to make the world better for all. They want to make the world significantly worse for a great many people and, well, arguably worse, but somewhat less so for a smaller group of people. I'd say that our aims are somewhat more legitimate than theirs in that respect. So in terms of the current state of play with the US left, because it is fascinating watching the debates because... I mean, you know, uh, given the state the British left is currently in, which is not ideal, uh, largely because the Labour Party is a far more, well, it's a more typical political party in which it's possible more to centralise control if you have the levers of power within the party. So take selections, like in the US system, you have these primaries that enables an Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez to be selected and the rest of the so-called squad. Uh, very difficult um, in the British context because they stitch up selections for seats and all the rest of it. Um, and basically, the left is getting a massive kicking. And the left, since since the 2019 general election, is very disorientated and demoralized. And I'm just wondering, with the US left now, I mean, you do sometimes I'm not like, oh, do you want to swap your problems? Uh, but it is okay, you know, like, uh, guys, look what's happened to us. Because I look at them and go, well, you know, you've got Bernie Sanders is seen as a legitimate political actor who is respected, one of the most popular politicians in the country. You have the squad, AOC, who came down from socialist heaven one day and is one of the best communicators, not just for the left, but for any you know, political movement on earth, probably. Uh, you've got these new, the new fresh blood, great charismatic leaders of the left, and you've got like the DSA has exploded, the Democratic Socialists of America. You've got all these big movements. You've got BLM, you know, which have really galvanized. And I just, but, but it seems to me a lot of the left in the US are just quite angry at the moment and often angry with the squad, often angry with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. I mean, sometimes when I see her being dunked on by left Twitter in the US, I'm like, are you, are you, are you joking? You've got the best communicator uh, on earth and you're not happy with it. Yeah, I mean, where, where do you stand on that? Would you think, do you think, I mean, is, is the US left, despite, is it incapable partly of understanding its gains or is it actually a case of, well, actually, the left, when it gets into Congress, actually ends up being assimilated by the power structures they exist to fight against? And actually, they've got a point, the Twitter left, that actually these guys, they might be great and all the rest of it, but not beyond accountability. They need to be held accountable, and they are being assimilated by those power structures. The problem, <clears throat> the problem I have is it feels like a lot of left-leaning people are utterly consumed by the aesthetic of left-leaning victory without understanding the practical consequences of what that would look like. Throughout all of human history, in the United States, we have made great gains in the left, uh, labor unionists, uh, 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 union organizers, socialists, anarchists in the street, DSA types, IWW types, but it has never been some glorious revolution. It's never been some massive systemic overhaul. It's been by pushing and pushing and pushing as hard as we can and then getting a conciliation, you know, a, a conciliatory gesture from the establishment. And that was never enough, but it didn't make people's lives better. We got the weekend. We got the 40-hour work week, you know. We got minimum wage. We got uh, an end to child labor laws. We made improvements, and those improvements were good and worthwhile and worth defending. The problem is there were a lot of people who have allowed themselves to believe that the only real progress is revolutionary progress. And therefore, anything short of that is a waste of time. The problem is this fundamentally misunderstands the way in which you build revolutionary power. You need numbers, and you can't do that by ignoring the institutions that allow us to reach the greatest number of people. It's not 1917 Russia. You don't build, like, working-class solidarity by riding on horse cart from town to town and yelling in the town square anymore. We're past those times. 
You engage with the systems that exist, you get as loud as possible, you try to bring people over with very basic messaging that speaks to the quality of their lives. And the fact of the matter is, most Americans are not at the stage where they're willing to hear, let's die on the streets to overthrow the bourgeoisie and secure the glorious proletarian dictatorship. This is not where most people in America are. This is not where most people are anywhere in the world. It's a waste of time to set the bar for revolutionary participatory action at that. So what do you do instead? If no real change can be made in the eyes of these people, you virtue signal. You attack the actual avenues for immediate change uh, as a way of demonstrating that you're so pure that you would never settle for something so trite. You distinguish yourself from liberals, who sometimes like AOC and Bernie, you know, uh, by saying, look, I reject them. I'm too left-leaning for them, even. It's an incredibly counterproductive process. If there are criticisms to make of these figures, and there are always criticisms, that's fine. But it's very clear to me that a lot of the criticism is coming from this holier-than-thou, anything short of the revolution isn't enough for me mentality, and it's fundamentally counterproductive. It's never worked that way. Not in all of human history has anything good come of that approach. Although, I mean, without little tea things there, without going all... Lenin defended 1917. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the, the Bolsheviks had very clear, simple messaging, peace, brand, and Latin, and all power to the Soviets. And actually, I would argue some of today's Leninists could actually learn a little bit from the Bolsheviks of 1917, who actually did very clear, persuasive messaging, which was populist in its orientation. But yeah, they worked with so they worked with the Soak Dems to fight off the fascists too, the Black Knives. They worked with social democrat factions to fight off uh, fascist incursions before they ended up seizing power. Just funny, those parallels. They are, yeah, I mean, got messy in the Russian Civil War. The, what, with the, 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 I suppose the point against what you've argued there, which I think, got, I mean, it's, it's a totally legitimate argument, I suppose is the, is the so-called, you know, it's very basic, isn't it? The Overton window, always a little cheeky reference. The Overton window has to be lobbed into any uh, political discussion about communication, but, you know, for those who aren't aware of the Overton window, who haven't read a generic article by someone like myself, it's named after this right-wing think tanker who had this who had this concept that you know the way you shift what well, sorry the window is at any time what's seen as politically possible, and anything outside it is seen as ludicrous. What planet you on? Uh, come back to reality, and that window obviously shifts over time. So in the nineteen seventies. The top rate of tax in Britain was 98%. Uh, you had mass nationalization of utilities. Uh, you had very strong trade unions. That was seen as relatively normal. And obviously, today, you have the privatization of mass of, of, of utilities. You have a much lower top rate of tax, corporation tax, and so on. And what the argument, what the Thatcherites did, is they had uh, the government of the time, under Margaret Thatcher, which did these terrible things, which overturned the social democratic consensus, but they also had more radical elements, which would always push for further radical, as they would see it on their terms, action than the government felt able or willing to do. You know, privatise more, privatise the health service, privatise, you know, uh, the National Health Service, which is was once called by a, a senior conservative politician, is the closest the English have to a religion. Uh, you know, privatise the post office, privatise, you know, which even Thatcher balked at. Uh, you know, privatise, uh, you know, every, the air, uh, you know, get abolish taxes. <laughs> uh, and actually, even though they couldn't realise what they wanted, they shifted the conversation more rightwards. So what the Thatcher government did, therefore, could portray itself as being a compromise, as, as well, some argue we should slash corporation tax to 10%, but we're only doing 
Do you see what I mean? I mean, isn't that a strategy the left can learn from? Because no, it... Well, yeah, of course. Yeah, of course. Because like even the Republicans, at least in this country, and of course, I'm speaking with more familiarity here. Republicans will constantly propose the most ludicrous um, nonsense, uh, completely impractical, unfeasible. Um, the complete privatization of our education system, like with DeVos, for example, you know, they'll push for this. They'll talk about like the elimination of all welfare. They'll talk like when you listen to a Republican talk about policy, they are not at all limited by the confines of reality because they aren't actually attempting to propose policy. They're getting the public on their side. They're invoking the moral panic. When Democrats talk about policy, oh, it's so measured, you know, we want to allocate this amount of money to this end, and it's wonderfully pragmatic, don't get me wrong, I do appreciate being grounded in reality, but it doesn't do much to really give the public a taste of the potential that could be found if we were to move further from the center, you know? The Republicans are always priming people for that next big step, um, and if they get what they want, as they have at some points in the past, they'll start pushing for the next point, you know? Donald Trump, uh, in the latter years of his presidency, actually asked the Supreme Court if they could do anything about gay people in this country or being able to adopt. Um, there have been uh, uh, multiple challenges to, like, really fundamental civil rights, such as, like, um, abortion in this country, uh, that nobody would have thought possible in the past. It's not just about proposing policy. It's about getting people on board with the radicalism. Democrats don't want to do that because Democrats are firmly a center-left party. Republicans, I think, would be perfectly comfortable being a far-right party as long as they're allowed. They will willingly slide in that direction. Democrats will keep themselves from being pulled in that direction, which is why all the radical stuff, if it can even be called radical. Personally, though Medicare for All is a radical policy by, you know, any standard, I think, the complete elimination of uh, private insurance, that's wonderful. Um, compared to some of the stuff Republicans say, I don't even think it's that radical, frankly. I mean... The Republicans will say this ludicrous stuff, like completely detached. And then Bernie Sanders gets, uh, you know, uh, ragged on for this. No, um, I think we need to be more aggressive in this respect. Pragmatic policies now, but look at the future ahead. Look at where, look at the horizon. Okay, because that's what they do, and it works. Foreign policy. I know there's been a big debate about this on the left at the moment um, in the U.S., particularly given what's happening in in Cuba at the moment. Now, I'm, I'm interested in this debate because partly, I mean, look, I get attacked on foreign policy. You know, either when it comes to you know, either I'm, um, a you know, a stooge of Western imperialism or an eight or a stooge of various foreign dictatorships. Um, but what I'm interested, say, take Cuba at the moment. Cuba. There are all these protests taking place. Uh, there, you know, it's, it's fascinating. There were protests currently taking place in South Africa, but the way they're portrayed by the media is is really rather different. It isn't portrayed as, uh, you know, suggesting that this is, uh, you know, that 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 you know, in, in South Africa, where despite the end of apartheid, we've had various neoliberal policies which have been pursued since. The lives of many of the black population in South Africa have actually deteriorated as a, as a consequence since, but within Western, you know, the, the Western media ecosystem, you wouldn't look at these protests as indicative of the failures of the neoliberal system in post-apartheid South Africa. Now in Cuba, obviously you've, you know, we, we could talk about the gains of the Cuban revolution, life expectancy increased by 20 years under five mortality decreased by around 15 times. Uh, obviously a health system which is world-class, a slightly higher life expectancy than the US. If we to compare it in the neighborhood, life expectancy in Cuba, 78, high T, 64. Uh, I mean, these are obviously phenomenal gains uh, that have been established because of the Cuban 
revolution, which obviously overthrew Batista, which was a client dictatorship of the US, in which, as anyone who's watched Godfather Part Two can, uh, uh, can testify, was uh, dominated by various mafia uh, gangsters, landlordism, all the rest of it. And I suppose, you know, because I've seen a bit of this discussion, there's one argument like, which is to say, well, it's very easy for you Western leftists being all edgelord to go, well, you know, uh, these are, you know, counter-revolutionary protesters and, uh, you know, they, because they want freedoms which you take for granted. I suppose the issue is, it is true, is it not, that Cuba is a few kilometers away from the global hegemon, which has strangled its economy worth hundreds of billions of pounds, the economic cost that Cuba has suffered, uh, and uh, has invaded it, has besieged it, has attempted various attempts to overthrow, including killing Fidel Castro by coming up with exploding Quite a few times, yeah. A lot, a lot, yeah. Um, he outlived a lot of US presidents, to be fair. But I think... So, I mean, without, you know, that isn't, I'm a democratic socialist. I see socialism as the democratization of every sphere of life. And Cuba is not the political system that I would aspire to. But is it not, do you think, incumbent on those of us on the left in, in your case, the global hegemon, in my case, kind of third rate, uh, but nonetheless imperialist power, to say, well, actually, the priority now for us is to, to demand the end of the embargo, to, to demand the, the, the attempt to asphyxiate Cuba, which the US government has pursued under yeah, every to, single to administration. Me, Shouldn't that be the focus? Yeah, to me, this is a very easy line to walk. It's not so much a line, it's a very wide boulevard, okay? So there are two positions that I hold. I don't think they contradict each other at all, you know? First of all, obviously end the embargo. Everybody wants to end the embargo, except for the United States and Israel. Okay, this is an uncontroversial opinion in every imaginable respect. And including my own government, even the puppet of the US calls it an illegal embargo. Yeah, yeah, it's just like everyone, like everyone agrees on this, you know? So that's one. Um, and uh, 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 additionally, there are plenty of bad actors in the Western hegemony which are trying to use this uh, set of Cuban protests as some kind of grand attack on like communism in cuba now of course me being um the sort of purist that i am i don't consider what the cuban government has as being a kind of socialism it's certainly not you know capitalism some kind of semi-authoritarian mixed market system but whatever the case may be um there are plenty of bad actors in the west that will use this as an attempt to delegitimize the broader project of anti-imperialist um action around the world, in Cuba and elsewhere, and these people must be resisted. When people like Candace Owens are talking about how the voice of the Cuban people is being heard here in America, they are completely full of it. They're they're liars, they do not care, they weren't talking about any of the other uprisings, what's happening in Chile, what happened in um, in um, uh, Bolivia, they don't care at all about what's happening in Colombia, they don't care, they don't care about any of this, it's just because Cuba's the communist country, that they will all rally in support of it. They're completely disingenuous, and the only thing they want from Cuba is more business rights from America. Okay, that's it. So that has to be pushed back against. The only thing that bothers me from people on the online left is there seems to be this incredibly, like, zealous hyper-nationalism on the part of some of them, where they think that any criticism of a government like Cuba or like China or whatever has to be some kind of CIA-backed like in, in insurgent color revolution, which is utterly deranged. 
while it's certainly the case that basically any anti-government protest in a country like Cuba is going to be in some way connected to American propaganda or imperialist uh, efforts, it's almost inseparable at that point. The fact remains that there are problems with the Cuban government and the people in that country have a right to speak out against it. The fact that there are agents working within there, may maybe or maybe not, you know, that represent American interests doesn't change anything. Like, does w would you delegitimize the entirety of the American BLM protests if it turned out that a couple of them were like, some of the people there were like being paid by Russia? No, of course you wouldn't. The legitimate underpinnings of the protest must be uh, recognized. And you cannot claim to be a revolutionary government if you turn your back on the people who enacted the revolution as soon as you take power. It's very simple. Just support the protesters and their criticisms of authoritarianism and government austerity, but also keep America's hands off. I just, I feel like that's a very easy line to walk, but so many people struggle with this, you know? Yeah, I mean, you're, look, I'm, look I, I support, as I said, a demo, you know, socialism, democracy to me are just interchangeable. The whole point of my, you know, the critique of capitalism I have is that it, it can never be a true democracy because it's always subverted by the interests of those with wealth and power who gained the system in their in their in, in their interests and and have responded to universal franchise and democracy being won by struggle by corrupting it to ensure an unequal distribution of wealth and power so their property and their power is protected. I, I suppose the issue is with you know with Cuba is a lot of people would look at what happened particularly to Russia, the Russian Federation as it is today, um that element of the Soviet Union, because there what happened after you know, the Soviet Union was a dictatorship. It was a, it was a, it, it was a repressive dictatorship, deprived people of their of their civil liberties. And what have we seen with the restoration of of capitalism in the Soviet Union? And I should say, I am not a tanky here, so I'm not. Again, the Soviet Union was a dictatorship. Blah blah blah. What happened after the collapse of the Soviet Union was life expectancy for men went down by ten to fifteen years. And uh, you saw the devastation, obviously, of social programs, the economy, the population, unsurprisingly, fell as a consequence. Um, you know, it was the sort of devastation, human devastation, full of life expectancy that you would expect in a war. Even under Joseph Stalin, who killed millions of his own people, life expectancy actually went up. So I think that's the... that, And, and then, obviously, Russia ends up in the grip of these mafia gangsters, thugs. Uh, it's not... Obviously, no one would look at that today and think that's a democracy. And I suppose that's the fear, isn't it? That's the fear that a lot of people have, that if the current Cuban system, which is not a democracy, as I would in, obviously understand democracy, for, fell, how would you avoid a situation of, particularly given, unlike Russia, it's much smaller and next to the US, of it essentially going the same way, its social programs being eradicated, uh, you, you're seeing the, the devastating human consequences that the, that the Russian Federation today suffered and then being run by gangsters. How would you, you know, that, because, you know, how, and that's how we couple the, that, that's why people go, well, we need to emphasize, given where we live, on our own governments and the power that they have in terms of strangling Cuba and the consequences on its own people, which, you know, the whole point of the embargo, is it not, is to make the Cuban people so miserable mm -hmm. that they overthrow their government. I mean, that is the function, isn't it? Yeah. I well, I mean, to me, there is there is no interventionist action in Cuba which will not 
worsen the quality of life for their population. Anybody who believes that we'll just march in there and give them democracy and everything will be better for it has never paid attention to any American interventionism in any part of Latin America ever at any point in history. It never, ever works that way, okay? It just doesn't. It, it, it's, that's the dream, right? That's always the dream. We'll do it to it's Saddam Hussein, you know? We'll do it with Gaddafi. We'll just go in and spread democracy. But that's not how geopolitics works. Um, even if even if you could pretend for a moment that Cuba was one autocratic leader with no public support, you know, uh, with no public backing and that nobody was at all tied to the image of Cuba being like this socialist, uh, 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 you know, like a, a bastion against American imperialism. Um, you take out this one dictator like it's a video game and the entire infrastructure, the entire network of political systems that keep the country together, they collapse. And what do we do then? Do we leave it in rubble or do we replace them with our own? Or do we kind of replace them with our own by facilitating the democratic election of subsequent leaders, you know, that we oversee, of course. And it's this never, ever, ever works out ever. It just doesn't. Self-determination is the name of the game here. If there are problems within Cuba, they will not be made better for our involvement. They must be allowed to flourish to the greatest possible extent. Do I want Cuba to be more democratic? Certainly I do. But America doesn't export democracy. It exports favorability to business contracts. That's what it exports. When Latin American countries fuss up and America comes in there, it, we don't make them more representative of the people. We make them easier to exploit resource and labor-wise. That's it. That's And you know what? It makes us very wealthy. And with Cuba, I imagine there would be quite a few American business interests, tourist agencies, what have you that would love to have more favorable relations with businesses in that country or to simply move offices there. But that will not make life better for the Cuban people. They will be made serfs in their own land. We must, and the embargo, we must give them the resources to develop. I think they've done, at least economically, rather well given their condition. Perhaps with more resources, uh, with a greater degree of economic stability, uh, there would be a higher overall standard of living, a higher overall standard of education. This would make it easier for the people in that country to demand more of their government. A more educated population is more likely to expect more from their government. This is the path forward, I think, the good path forward. Timeline by well, somebody's gone on an interesting journey, Glenn Greenwald, which we won't go into now because it's certainly an interesting journey uh but he posted it because he was like you know uh, he knew i was speaking to you and it was about um about the middle east and about western intervention there and i think it was your suggestion that actually if the us withdrew then it would end in chaos and china would exploit that and set up satellite regimes yeah it's already happening it literally happened within a, about two weeks of us starting to pull out Already, uh, the Taliban have made significant gains, and already China is looking to fold Afghanistan into the Belt and Road Initiative. Everything I said in that thing came true. I said within 10 years this will happen. It happened within 10 days. So, I mean, I mean it can't fault me I mean, for being right. Well, we've had 20 years now of obviously the, well, we've had longer involvement because obviously in the 1980s, the US was arming jihadis against uh, the Soviet forces. Uh, some of whom, obviously later, including Osama bin Laden, ended up forming Al-Qaeda, Taliban, radicalized partly in religious schools in the border in Pakistan, who then obviously took over Afghanistan. Uh, but there was a lot, obviously, itself, the jihadis, who some of whom ended up in the Taliban, mm -hmm. uh, were, were, were partly US-funded. And before the Taliban, the so-called Northern Alliance themselves were made up of some very unsavory fundamentalist uh, jihadi forces. Um, but we've had 20 years of the war in Afghanistan. 
obviously huge numbers of Afghan civilians have have died, um, and as well as that, British and American soldiers have also died, uh, all too many of them. And as we can see, after 20 years of that war, the Taliban obviously now are regaining the territory they've lost. But doesn't that speak to, I mean, look, unless people are suggesting what a permanent US occupation of Afghanistan with all the attendant deaths, which actually the Taliban and, and misery of that intervention, oh, no. which the, to, the to Taliban be... have exploited. But sure, so the answer surely isn't a protracted well, continued... No, to be clear, I'm in yes. favor of pulling out of Afghanistan. I said that in the clip. So the clip that people were passing around was part of a broader conversation where I said I was in favor of us pulling out of Afghanistan. That isn't an aggressive question. That's literally because I think foreign policies on the left is a very important in discussion and debate. Anyway, carry on. Well, the thing that bothers me, of course, is that a lot of the people who were passing that clip around were doing so extremely diso uh, dishonestly. Uh, the clip that I was that it was pulled from. I mean, you're taking what, like one minute from like a broader streamed conversation. This yeah, isn't exactly, which is why you're answering it now. Exactly. exactly. Right, right, right. Yeah. So with uh, what I was saying was I do want us to pull out of Afghanistan. However, it bothers me when people are dishonest about the consequences. Make no mistake, us pulling out of Afghanistan will be devastating to Afghanistan. Their infrastructure will crumble. Taliban forces are already making massive headways. Their military is not capable of fighting back um, effectively enough. Uh, there have already been mass deaths. All of this is going to happen. More and more territories will be seized. And yes, China will seize control of the geopolitical vacuum. This is just a fact, but I still think that we should pull out of Afghanistan because I don't think a better solution is coming. I don't think we're getting that exit strategy that we were looking for. For years, I thought if maybe if I was president, maybe with enough money invested, give me like a three year program, pump up the Afghanistani uh, military, you know, uh, ensure like uh, border cities are well secured and protected. Have UN troops in there. We've already done all this. It doesn't work. We're not doing whether we're not doing it enough or we're not doing it right. It's not working. We're not going to get the out that we want here. So unfortunately, in lieu of no better options, uh, a withdrawal seems to be the only thing that we can do. I just want people to be honest about it. There are people who pretend that the current U.S. occupation of Afghanistan is the source of the ongoing misery in that country. This is generally not the case. It's mostly the fighting with the Taliban at the moment. Of course, U.S. presence in Afghanistan is what motivates so many people to go ahead and join the Taliban because U.S. interventionism generally leads to the radicalization of the people in the countries that we occupy. But these are all very complicated subjects. I just think people are too dogmatic when they speak of them. Same with the yeah, Assad thing. It's... I mean, when you say, you know, it's not the problem. I mean, the only problem, you're absolutely right. And obviously the Taliban are a vicious extremist organization, uh, which everyone on the left should should find repellent, repulsive, abhorrent in every possible way. I suppose mm -hmm. the issue is the US itself. I mean, partly we can understand the Taliban is partly feeding off the, the misery. But I mean, if we look under Trump, for example, civilian deaths from airstrikes in Afghanistan, and I say this is very important because some people, I do find this a little frustrating, um, in their rightful uh, critique of the democratic establishment, including Obama, who used airstrikes, drones against civilians, uh, and then joked about it when the Jonas about the Jonas Brothers, if they came anywhere near his daughters, he'd drone strike them. Haha, <laughs> very funny, Obama, giving you murder Pakistani children with drones. Absolutely hilarious. But nonetheless, under Trump, and people go, well, actually, Trump wasn't the warmonger of his predecessor. The number of civilians killed by international airstrikes increased in Afghanistan by 330% yep. from 2016, the last four year of the Obama administration, to 2019. Uh, so in, in 2019 alone, US airstrikes killed 700 uh, civilians. 
the US, its allies, and the Afghan government killed an average of 582 civilians per year, 2017-2016. So it's part of the... I mean, it is, you're right. It is, there is a problematic brand, brand of so-called anti-imperialism, which will only zone in on atrocities committed directly by Western imperialism. Yeah, I'm going to be honest with you. I agree, but th- th- you're uh, right. But there's a nuance, isn't there, of kind of, you know... Oh, there is nuance. I'm just completely blackpilled on the, like, legions of online anti-imperialist leftists because I've found almost all of them are Assad defenders, um, which I, like, I have no respect for. Having recently yeah, encountered them and realized the extent of their conspiracism, a lot of them, yeah, by, an- right, by anti-imperialist, what they actually mean is that they're anti-American. And not in the cool way, by the way. I'm anti-American in the way that... I think that America, the institution, the nation, has failed its people. There are ways we could use our wealth and power. Uh, We are not. We're using them poorly. We're using them to hurt people. I'm anti-American because I want America to be better. They're anti-American because they've just found other countries to defend. Mostly, it seems, Russia. Um, That, like, they seem to buy into this, just another set of geopolitical power interests. And, well, if that's the case, then your criticisms are illegitimate. Because at that point, it's just team sports. It's not a real substantive leftist critique. Of America, it's just you fall in line with a different, and in this case, probably further to the right set of um, of geopolitical interests, which is deeply, deeply disappointing. Anti-imperialism is simple in concept, but complicated in action. Was it anti-imperialist for America to pull its troops out of um, eastern Syria and leave the Rojavan population to their own, knowing they would be gobbled up by Assad and by Turkey? I would consider that a pro-interventionist perspective. They were our allies, and we allowed imperialism to take place by no longer stationing our troops there. I th- they, were, they were allies to us, and a socialist project as well, the Rojavans. They were doing something extraordinary out there, and we abandoned them. Um, I this to me well, is not. Yeah. An... Well, Turkey, of course, is a Western ally, of course, isn't it? It's a key NATO ally of the United States. Right, but they wouldn't um, fire on. The they wouldn't the fire business. there as long as U.S. troops were there. Nobody, the uh, Assad and Turkey, they weren't going to start shelling those cities as long as U.S. troops were there. Why would they? Why risk war with us of all people? Mm-hmm. But now we leave them, and within weeks of us leaving, they start shelling Rojava. It all happens again. War eternal. That was the one good thing we were doing in the Middle East, by the way. Like the one defensible thing fighting ISIS with Rojava. That was like the one good thing that we were doing and Trump pulled us out of there. The only, it's the only thing I could get on board with. Um, but yeah, I don't know. It's just, we, we, need to, we need to focus on the complexities of geopolitical engagement, which sometimes extend a little bit beyond war bad, war bad. Because if that chanting like makes you believe the things that I said about Afghanistan are untrue, that the Taliban will surge inward, that China will take advantage of the geopolitical vacuum, then you're not anti-imperialist. You're just ignorant of what imperialism is and does. No, yeah, I mean, look, I agree. look again on the Assad. I've had the Assad defenders uh, right. who have accused me of being in the pay of an assortment of security of agencies, course. yes, uh, which would be, if, you know, it's got got to have my luxurious lifestyle paid for by someone. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, again, I'm, I'm, you know, Assad, you know, if we think of the barrel bombing of civilians and and the the, the, the gassing of civilians by the Assad regime no no one on the left should ever have any again empathy with that brutal mass murdering dictatorship which killed more civilians in syria than isis for example managed to do but because they have a secular veneer and all the rest of it 
and uh, speak in the language of Arab nationalism when they regard it as opportune to do so. People can pretend there is some sort of progressive uh, content to that regime. And often I find striking, and I've seen this again with China, and they start adopting war on terror style terminology, mm-hmm. uh, which is, ah, this is their fighting, these Islamist fundamentalists, right? They're just like, you just sound like you, you sound. Uh, you know, like Paul Wolfowitz. That Uyghur uh, Muslims have a propensity to terrorism, and we must restore law and order by cracking down on the Xinjiang. Pro- yeah, it's yeah. like it's like wow. Okay, we're all I neocons now. Okay, so I agree on that. I suppose the issue with anti-imperialism, as it would be understood, is the U.S. is the global hegemon, and the consequences of its actions are, by definition, global and therefore infinitely more severe than what we would consider to be local gangster regimes whose power extends, nefarious as it is, over far more limited territory, and therefore their capacity for damage will always be less profound and severe. So the US in the history of the Middle East, of course, whether it be overthrowing uh, Mossadegh in Iran and all the attendant calamities that then followed, whether it be in that was in the 1950s, uh, whether it be uh, obviously uh, their role in the Iran Iraq war, whether it then be, of course, the wars in Iraq, the sanctions regime. Uh, you know, we're talking, you know, globally, Latin America, Asia, Middle East, you know, millions and millions of deaths, the US backed dictatorships in Indonesia, which slaughtered millions of communists and uh, communist sympathizers or anyone deemed to be on the left. So I suppose that's the critique, isn't it? And the, de- the what people worry about is anything which can be seen as those of us on the left justifying or however inadvertently mission creep in the Middle East, given that every single US intervention in the Middle East has been a catastrophe. Right, well, uh, I'll say that... If being yeah. if being open and forthcoming about the realities of geopolitics is considered to be a pro imperialist move, you're not advocating for a political stance. You're advocating for dogmatism. That we mm-hmm. should we should always favor a knowledgeable approach on these issues. A knowledgeable approach will, in almost every instance, procure outcomes and understandings favorable to our perspective. It was the knowledgeable approach that told us that Iraq and uh, sorry Iraq and Afghanistan were not places we want to invade to begin with. It is the knowledgeable approach that tells us that sanctions must be lifted on Cuba. It is the knowledgeable approach that tells us that U.S. interventionism in Latin America has been destructive without without exception throughout human history. The knowledgeable approach is the best one. I very much dislike dogmatism. So when people get angry about uh, with a, with a frank discussion on these issues, it worries me. Do we actually care about anti-imperialism or do we only care about the flags we wave? Because uh, it's like, if you speak to these positions, right? I mean, the things that we actually care about, we want to reduce harm. We want to make sure that people live fair and freely, right? It may be the case that the United States as a whole, as way of our power, produces more global misery than, say, ISIS does regionally. But regionally, ISIS does more harm than we ever could. In a long-term occupational sense, I can guarantee you this, the people in Afghanistan would much prefer to be ruled over by United States soldiers than they would ISIS. I This is very much the case, and you, there's polling done. I mean, it, of course, of course, we're bad. We certainly are. We're bad globally, too. But regionally, the consequences of our imperialism have led to the manifestation of agents worse than us, at least on a local level. That's why I was so in favor with our fighting alongside the Rojavans against ISIS. It felt amazing, you know? We had a marginalized group, you know, the Kurdish um, population in, in, in eastern Syria, fighting with U.S. troops very effectively against ISIS, pushing back against the worst actors in that region, and we did so in a way that did not extend the reach of U.S. imperialism. 
We didn't control Rojava. We weren't like setting up puppet dictators in Rojava. We worked with them because they were talented fighters, as are we, and we did a lot of good work. And now, I fear, in our unreasoned absence, things may grow worse. Perhaps there's a way for the United States to, in an, in an almost non-political or politically ambivalent way, fight against ISIS, uh, to fight against the Taliban, you know? I don't know if that's possible in Afghanistan. I think it was possible with the Rojavans. I don't know if that window is closing. But these are discussions that we have to have. These are discussions we need to be willing to have without being accused of being like crazy neocons justifying the war with Iran or something. Yeah, because not, it's yeah, not what, something I mean, that I want. I just want us to be able to talk about what the, what the consequences of this behavior will be. Yeah, of course. As a socialist, you should be a universalist. You believe in the emancipation of all humanity uh from all forms of oppression and exploitation and, and and horror and you don't descend into cultural relativism which i have seen some on the left do almost by suggesting there's you know that that that, that, that certain peoples are incapable of, of of democracy yeah i've seen it and, too but and it, but equally i suppose yeah i mean you know one argument which i i find often just very obnoxious which often comes from the right is oh, you anti-war protesters, I don't see you protesting outside the Russian embassy. And my response to that is, well, look, I think the Russian regime is, a, again, a despicable authoritarian uh, gangster regime. But the difference is, is as citizens, we have power and influence over our own governments, at least some, limited often, but we have some power and influence that when they commit wars of aggression or support foreign dictatorships, they're doing so in our name, whether we like it or not, and we have some leverage through collective power. And obviously, we don't have any collective power over the Russian government, which is treated anyway as a hostile entity. And I suppose the danger is all we look like is, go, you know, we're protesting. It's like, what, what do we want, a war with Russia or something? Do you see what I mean? It's kind of the, the reason we focus on the crimes most uh, which are committed by our own country or by clients of our own country isn't because we're oblivious or we don't care about the horrors of, 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 of Assad who barrel bombs his own people and gasses children. It's because we have power over some power over whether or not our own governments send weapons, which we have paid for, uh, to, to slaughter people in Yemen, which is the biggest humanitarian crisis on earth as a Saudi-led coalition armed and backed by our governments. I've been to a Yemeni refugee camp. I've seen the horror. Uh, so, I mean, do you see what I mean? That's why I always think that's we, why our focus is always there. We have a responsibility to, um, to, to address things from our perspective, not because we abandon the internationalist approach, but I mean, largely because like you say, we have limited influence. There is absolutely nothing that I can do in the slightest extent to affect what Russia's foreign policy will be. I can, in the most minute of ways, influence American foreign policy because Americans watch me and America's a democracy and they're going to vote and they're going to say stuff in online forums and blah, blah, blah. So, I mean, it's minute, of course. It's not, uh, it's not exactly the, um, the hole-in-one uh, fix imperialism button that I would like it to be, but it is something. It is something worth working towards. And we should be critical in those respects, but we shouldn't allow our criticisms to devolve into petty partisanship. Uh, the only reason we criticize America, then, is through this... Um, this demented and ahistorical belief that, like, the criticism of America is in and of itself sufficient geopolitical commentary. It's not, and it never, ever has been. Which is why all uh, revolutionaries, all uh, socialist theorists in modern history have not ended their critiques of capitalism and imperialism at they're bad. 
you have to understand these things a little bit more than that. Even Marx said quite a few nice things about America, though perhaps he knew not what beast it would be led to become in the 20th century. But um, he did so even knowing America was a capitalist country because there were some elements of American democracy he thought socialists could exploit to better propagate our political interests. There's always nuance there. And the more the online left discourse gets consumed by people who think of nuance as treason, the more I can't help but wonder if I'm not dealing with left-leaning people at all. Perhaps people who value left-leaning aesthetic, you know, the, the um, political and cultural history of leftism, but in the immediate moment, they push for things in ways which are either beneficial to the right or at the very least not beneficial to us. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I find that really interesting. Just, I mean, Leon Trotsky was another, I suppose, you would regard, he could be regarded as a very pro-American Marxist. He lived in, of course, in New York for a while as a, as a refugee, as an exile, as a journalist, of course, as well. And I think he said, in the third year of communism, Americans will stop chewing gum or something. He's being acerbic. Uh, but I always found that interesting because I was brought up by Trotskyist. My late father was a full-time official for the Militant Tendency, which is a revolutionary Trotskyist organization that then existed. And uh, he was obsessed with American culture, American music, American history. I went on to study American history partly because of that. And so I always found that really interesting because obviously the knee-jerk, often understanding of often the European left is, you know, obviously we should abhor American imperialism just as we should abhor uh, British imperialism, not least when it was stronger. But, uh, but you know, to look at the great achievements partly won by people in the US who struggled collectively against injustice because obviously a lot of American popular music was invented by people who were subjected to the the horrors of of of, of the the American form of capitalism. Just lastly, I'm interested, I mean this is something again which comes up on as a kind of schism on the left that shouldn't is mm-hmm. it, people often talk about it as identity politics or whatever as a as a pejorative. And I find this interesting because actually here in Britain, we have a very particular, to use, I suppose, a terminology, a, a variant of transphobia, which is uh, endemic and very specific, I would say, to the British context. Because in the US, there's more of a consensus amongst so-called centrists, liberals and socialists to support trans people and their rights and their dignity. And in Britain, that's not the case at all. There's an interpretation often or so-called second wave feminism, which came from the US, but feminists in the US have largely moved on from, uh, which often means uh, a, a almost an ideological rejection of trans people. Uh, that's rejected by most people on the left, but not all. Um, and actually the polling is shows it's generational. Older people oppose trans rights. Younger people are more likely to support them. Women consistently support trans rights more than men, particularly younger women. I mean, what's your stance on that? Because I think this is, for me, you know, look, the first book I ever wrote was Chav's The Demonization of the Working Class. My understanding of class is the central, my central understanding of, of, of you know, class politics. That's the basis of the left. But we have to understand the how injustices intersect. And, you know, a working class woman of colour has certain specific injustices that, a white woman will not experience or necessarily even understand uh, that as a gay, you know, I'm a white cisgender gay guy, what a working class trans woman in the North goes through is, even though we're part of the LGBTQ rainbow, is, is like a different planet. It's a different world. I don't understand that kind of impression. But some on the left are a bit like, well, this is actually just identity politics that's distracting from the class struggle as though the working class is just this homogenous entity. So what's your take on that? Because I think this, 
it's something I'm very passionate about. Yeah, two things. First of all, there are a lot of people who use the term working class synonymously with white people. It's very strange to me. At least here in America, the working class has largely been defined by black and brown labor. Obviously, we had literal slaves, but even moving past that point, if you take a look at lower income brackets and the people who are most cruelly exploited by our, um, uh, by our capitalist system, you will find it is predominantly racial minorities, at least proportional to their um, presence in the population. So when people say, like, forget the id poll, we need to support the working class, buddy, the working class is the id poll, okay? You're, they're there, all right? Second of all, um, pro-austerity right uh, actors learned a long time ago that their arguments don't sell anymore. Nobody gets out of bed and, like, salutes the flag to the, to the knowledge that, like, soon businesses will have less regulation. This is just not what gets people out there to vote. So what the people on the right, the pro-business right, will do is they will get people to vote for them by forcing people to focus on obsequious cultural issues that we often call, like, culture war or identity politics issues. They are the ones who dredge up the, um, the uh, BLM, the uh, trans bathroom bills, the trans people in the military. They're the ones who hyperfixate on this. Minor progressive pushes from the left turn into gigantic anti-left protests from the right. The problem is because they need to focus on culture war issues to avoid talking about real policy because they have none. If we give up the line on trans people, not only would that be horrible for trans people, of course, they'll find another line. Remember, Donald Trump was also looking to push back against gay couples being able to adopt. Um, and there were Supreme Court justices on the conservative side that were re-looking at the whole gay marriage thing, which was made nationally uh, legal back in 2015. If you give up on trans people in two years, the big culture war line is going to be on whether or not gay people really should marry. If you give up on that, it's going to be on whether or not sodomy laws should be kept legal. It's going to be on abortion. Eventually, we're going to start talking about affirmative action again. It's going to roll back and back and back and back and back. It's like the Sisyphusian rock. It will, unless we continue to push it, roll back to the beginning of the hill. Because the last thing that Republicans or Tories or wherever else want to do is talk about economic policy. God, they don't want to talk about economic policy. Because theirs have not been pro-working class for a very, very long time. They'll always bury it under something else. Of course, you know, you had Brexit, um, which turned into a culture war issue. I mean... Uh, were people really talking about Brexit in the context of its economic impact? It was. It was a. It was a proxy war. Exactly. It was a proxy war. Yeah. But if you if you give up on Brexit, and I suppose Brexit passed, so you know whatever you have your referendums, and now it becomes another thing. You know, now we have the whole trans thing over in the UK, and I'm sure you're more familiar with the ongoing culture war battlefront in the UK than I am. We I know what we're focusing on here in the US, which is critical race theory. The point that I'm making is never be baited into thinking that giving up on the culture war issue is going to be um, a, like in a more effective way on pushing for working class policies. First of all, at least here in the US, progressive policies are more popular than a lot of progressively economic policies. Stuff like gay marriage or like uh, interracial marriage or like whatever the big progressive issue is at the time, they're more popular now than a lot of the economic stuff that people seem to push for. So um, maybe don't give up on those. Just focus on them on ways that matter, you know? Don't buy into like this weird like white managerial class Robin D'Angelo tier. We need to fight against racism. So we're going to, uh, you know, dedicate every single political speech to a 20 minute spiel on how like 
the racial consciousness in America must be, you know, consolidated and made more substantive because that does turn people off. But keep your messaging clean and simple. We're anti-racist. We don't like racism, but here's what we have for you. Here are the things we care about. Here's the message we have for you. You know, if you're pro-racism enough that none of this sounds good to you, then okay, but we're sticking by this. Sometimes we get so lost in the weeds and people on the left will try to advocate for policies that only really make sense to people who have like a degree in gender studies or like a degree in uh you know sociology and that doesn't turn on voters but we shouldn't give up in the broader prospect does that make sense i kind of rambled there but that's what it i does, yeah i mean for me you know the way i understand when we talk about that because i always think the culture was an unhelpful description which is in a sense on the terms of the right because cultural for me i generally understand it as backlash against the struggles of women and minorities for their rights acceptance security dignity and you know when people say well we need to end the culture war including people who say you know liberals or progressives i i for me it's like the class war it's like fine on whose terms though <laughs> and 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 that's you know that you know and, and also it's this sense of that some have as though you know which is that the working class as you say you know as you as, as you put it the way they would they either overtly or otherwise is that is basically white white men who are straight in their 50s in this country we have a problem because the way the working class is often portrayed is that younger people and the working class are discrete separate categories of people and mm-hmm. um, when actually obviously younger people in this country home ownerships collapse they don't have capital they're saddled with debt if they go to university uh, they're often in precarious jobs uh, and yet but they're young and if they've got a degree or whatever they can't be working class when you get older people who own their own homes outright uh, who rightly have their pensions and so protected uh, and have socially conservative views and they're seen as the authentic expressions of the working class and they cannot be alienated at any cost by people talking about the rights of trans people when actually to be honest with you no one's really talking about you know the rights of trans people other than often obsessive transphobes in the internet and on newspapers yeah they Britain. don't even like what is the democratic party I, again i speak in americans central perspective but what does the american democratic party even really say about trans people it's not that often like really it's not a, a huge point of focus it's more like ah, uh, and they should have the right to use the bathrooms they want and uh you know uh it, it, you know we support them like but that's it the line is pretty simple um and then past that it's just this incredibly loud and persistent um warmongering uh chant from the right constantly trying to dredge up conflict on these issues and on everything else too. Critical race theory. Nobody on the left was talking about critical race theory. Nobody. Nobody was mentioning it. The term has now been used, what, an umpteen trillion times on Fox News in the past month. It just spikes upwards. Nothing happened to instigate that sudden jump. Nothing took place. It just happens. They need something to talk about because they don't want to talk about policy. What policy would they talk about? What is the Republican Party offering people in America? They don't talk about policy ever. They had, uh, what was it, nine, ten years after Obamacare was put out to come out with an alternative, a Republican alternative to Obamacare, and they didn't have one. Donald Trump got rid of the uh, of the mandate. He still didn't have a plan to put forward. They never had any intention of replacing Obamacare. And Republican voters don't care because they're always being led around by this topic or that, trans people in the military, critical race theory, the uh, em- embargo, people at the border. It's always something. MS-13. 
Bausch, I've just realized I've taken a huge amount of time. And I realize you've got a life here where you've got all the things to talk about. <laughs> we are over time. I appreciate you speaking with me. It's been a huge pleasure, honestly. We covered everything. So that's everything sorted. Done. Uh, thank you so much for joining. Because uh, I've got to do an outro because I've got to put this in my own channel. Blimey. Uh, but uh, it's been a great pleasure. So thank you so much. I will leave you and your viewers to just continue to have a great time without me. Probably a better time without me. Uh, but cheers, Ash. Lots of love. Take care. Take care. Thank you.